Buddhism, like um, many other spiritual paths, has a very uh, long tradition of studying the nature of suffering in great detail. And it seems that we can actually talk endlessly about suffering and limitation and the need to let go of attachments and desires and grasping and the need to let go of anger and fear and all of these variety of difficulties which can be set us as human beings. And I do think too as Westerners, because we have, it seems, a certain education in developing guilt, um, self-hatred, doubt, and self-denial, that it is very easy for us to um, become very involved in this aspect of Dharma teaching. In fact, meditation for many people seems to be taken as a kind of invitation to become a, a very enlightened uh, judge of themselves and as a way of enumerating the difficulties and the problems that we have. Now, this is understandable, both aspects of what I've just said. First of all, it is, of course, important that we understand what causes suffering, what causes conflict, what causes limitation. And it is also inevitable that as we become more intimate with ourselves, um, that we don't just encounter, you know, our most enlightened qualities. We do also encounter things in ourselves that we're not especially happy about. Um, and it's probably also true that if we were entirely happy about everything in ourselves, we would be unlikely to sit down and meditate. Most of us would find more thrilling things to do with our time. But here we are, and I think it is one thing that is very important to consider that as we do listen to teachings which speak about the cause of suffering, as we do sit in meditation and at times encounter qualities which we know do cause pain and conflict in our lives, that as we do this, it is also very, very important for us to remember that this path is actually about the realization of happiness and freedom. That the purpose or the intention in ever speaking about the nature of suffering is not so that we become endlessly ensnared in either self-blame or self-improvement because this is a path of suffering actually, an endless path of suffering but to remind ourselves again and again that what the dharma is, it is an invitation to connect more deeply with the radiance of our own happiness and to understand more deeply the nature of our own freedom.
And really never to forget this. Even in those moments when we feel most confused, most depressed, most ensnared, to very much remind ourselves that the point of what we do here is not to become more intimately acquainted with limitations, but to understand even amidst the mind that is churning, the body that's complaining, the feelings that are swirling, what does it really mean in this moment? To be free and to be happy. Now when we set out on this journey, I think most of us are really moved by the wish to find a greater depth of happiness in our lives, a greater depth of peace and of joy within our own being and within our own lives. The actuality of our journey seems to involve freeing our hearts and our minds of a great deal of fear and self-centeredness and confusion and anger in order to find this happiness. I think we often think in this very linear way. When you sit down and you find a mind that's very busy or you find yourself feeling very negative in the day or filled with doubt, then it seems very easy to accept that somehow we must postpone happiness until later, after we've done the serious work first of somehow getting rid of the things that seem to stop us from being happy. And I do think, for many people, this feels like a very solemn undertaking. You know, if you sit down and you have lots of demons and monsters and all these things that you'd rather not be with, it feels like this is a very serious job we're doing. And one only really needs to look around on retreat at the faces of people on retreat. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be, there does seem to be this kind of unspoken agreement, you know, that we're going to be very serious together just now. And possibly even miserable together right now, so that we can be happy together later. The Buddha once said that this path is the path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. It is helpful to remind ourselves that the peace and the happiness that the Buddha spoke about were not necessarily spoken about as future destinations or as rewards for suffering or as some kind of compensation for being miserable in the practice. I don't think it was ever mentioned that suffering was a kind of spiritual stepping stone to a higher level of peace and happiness. Nor, I think, is it really mentioned that peace and happiness in this path and in ourselves is in any way dependent upon arranging our worlds or our minds 
so that there's no arising of the unpleasant, the difficult, or the challenging. I do believe that the peace that is spoken about in the Dharma and the happiness that is spoken about in this teaching is a very different quality and a very different dimension of peace and of happiness that has nothing to do with future and has nothing to do with modification. There's a quality of happiness that can be found deeply discovered. When we are willing to simply surrender wanting and craving and allow ourselves to be, just to be with what is, just to be with whatever comes, there's a great peace and a great happiness that is found when we're willing to surrender our demands and our shoulds about how everything ought to be or ought to appear in ourselves or in our practice. There's a great happiness and a great peace to be discovered in aloneness, an inner contentment where we are willing to open to our own being, our own hearts and minds in a very unconditional way without judgment, without grasping or resistance. There's a great peace and happiness that comes with it, the immediacy that we can find in our perceptions of just listening to a bird, of just seeing a tree, of just walking simply without destination. That contentment that comes with intimacy with the moment, the contentment that comes with intimacy with our own being, when it is not filled with shoulds and oughts and must, there's a great happiness that comes with an open heart. Now this happiness is not necessarily a result of a lot of time in the practice. It's not necessarily a result of having gone through long struggles and great inner tortures and a very arduous kind of uphill climb. This happiness, this, this quality of happiness, this kind of contentment, this sense of well-being, of course, is what is offered to us and available to us in each moment. And I do feel that this entire teaching, this entire practice, is one that invites us again and again just to partake, just to really taste and to savor this sense of well-being, of fullness, of richness, of contentment with where we are. I think this is sometimes difficult for us to accept because our more conditioned ideas of happiness are very different than this. You know, our more conditioned of our ideas of happiness more often have to do with, with gratifications, with being high, with a sense of intensity or excitement in our lives. That this is often part of the way that we really have come to look upon happiness in our lives. I think sometimes we, we have learned or we've come to believe that 
Happiness is something we have to work for, or we have to earn it, or in some way we, we pay for it, emotionally or, or physically in some way. I do think we also come to believe through our conditioning that happiness has something to do with personal power. The power to avoid the unpleasant, the power to attain the pleasant, the power to get rid of things that we find difficult or challenging, the power to achieve, to rearrange, to redecorate our worlds and our minds according to our desires, the power to realize our desires, our ambitions. In our culture, this is called happiness. So then happiness has, it seems, a lot to do with being good enough, with being able to get what we want, with being able to overcome or get rid of what we don't want. Happiness then seems to have a lot to do with what kind of personal power or personal responsibility we're able to take in our lives. Now I think this is a very unfortunate kind of conditioning. It creates a great burden for us in our lives. It creates so many ideas of what happiness looks like. You know, these ideas of what happiness actually looks like, the models of happiness. And carrying these burdens and these images. And I think the achievement of happiness seems like a very complicated process. Because always it seems to involve so much doing. Doing, producing, getting somewhere. This is the way we come to think of the path to happiness being. And I think in carrying those, those very limited ideas of happiness, we begin to pursue it in great earnestness in our lives. And it often feels very elusive. This is a little story like to read you. There was a, a small ocean fish, and he met an older fish. And he said to the older fish, You know, you're a lot older than I, you've been around a lot longer. So I'd like to ask you something. Can you tell me where to find this thing they call the ocean? I've looked everywhere, in the depths and in the shallows, near the shore and in the center. The ocean, said the elder fish, that is the thing you're in now. Oh, this, said the disappointed fish, this is just water. And he swam away to search somewhere else. The earnestness the intensity that we bring to our search for happiness may very well blind us to understanding the nature of the happiness that is already with us and may very well blind us to understanding the nature of unhappiness. When we have these very strange of ideas of happiness being something that we can create or get, or pursue, or possess in some way, then I think we also equate unhappiness with something being wrong, 
something being wrong. Now, we grow up, you know, trained to, to be fixers and doers in our world. It's one of our basic trainings. And if there is something wrong, then our most immediate response is, how do I fix it? How do I fix it? How do I fix something that is wrong in my world or in myself? The notion of being right, of what is right, then seems to rest again on personal power. To make things right, I have to do it. I have to change. I have to alter. Now, if we feel unhappy or discontented or unfulfilled in some way, mostly what we start to do is we start to look for what is wrong. Either we look outside of us in our personal world, the people we're with, the objects we're in contact with, the roles we play, the lifestyles we have, the beliefs we carry, or we look inwardly at our inner world when something feels wrong, when we feel discontented. What's wrong with me? So then we start investigating, perhaps, our thoughts, our feelings, our personal histories, our personalities. And this investigation is most often motivated by the idea of altering and fixing what is wrong so that we can arrive at a different place that we'll call right. Now, this doesn't imply in any way that everything in the world is wonderful and acceptable and we are just terrific, shining, you know, drops of light, each one of us. There is much, obviously, in the world around us which causes pain and sorrow and conflict and all of us need to have the courage to say no to that. There may also be within ourselves tendencies and patterns of reaction that we are very aware cause sorrow or cause alienation. And part of being a very conscious human being is the willingness really to inquire into those patterns, to look at them very carefully without judgment. So there is that aspect. But what I would like us more to reflect upon is this idea, this notion that our well-being, our inner well-being, our capacity to be, the delight that we experience in being, the happiness that is possible for us, whether really any of this is actually dependent upon the objects in our mind, or the objects or the people in our world that we are in contact with. Now, we are, I think most of us, conditioned by our culture to believe that this is so. That our happiness, that our well-being actually is dependent and actually does rest upon the quality and the number of objects we're in contact with. This includes thoughts, ideas, opinions, as well as the outer objects in our world. Now, this myth of dependency is really what motivates so much of the restlessness and so much of the busyness in our lives. When we 
think of restlessness and busyness that can be so consuming. You know, the desire to have, the desire to become, the desire to possess, the desire to achieve, all of that busyness which can be such a consuming mission. All of those desires to endlessly rearrange our world. Now, we see this in, in you know, a very expansive way in our lives, how often we want to rearrange our worlds. If I had a little less of this person, a little more of that person, or, you know, a little less work, a little more vacation, a little more of this, a little less of that. This we also do, of course, inwardly too, we find ourselves doing that. You know, if I had a little less anger, a little more generosity, if I had a little less greed and a little more openness, then I would be happy. Now, this kind of restlessness, the seeking for the more promising, the more exhilarating, the more exciting, the more satisfying content, what is that a statement of? Then what we are expressing in that restlessness is the belief that the happiness that it's possible for me to experience, the well-being that it's possible for me to experience, is dependent upon my success in doing all of this. And when something in our world ceases then to offer us excitement or satisfaction, it seems perfectly okay to say enough. You know, dismiss it, reject it, get rid of it. Now, most of us at this point in our lives, we've done this in the world, you know, we've, we've traveled this path, probably all of us to some extent, of getting and becoming and having and pursuing. And in many ways we've learned the kind of fruitlessness of this path. It simply doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're more filled with, more happy, more, more content, more, more delighted, more fulfilled. We've learned the fruitlessness of that lesson. But I would like to say that the hungry mind gets a kind of second wind in meditation. It gets a kind of another, another life. It seems like another opportunity to go into this search. How often many, many, many people speak about their meditation practice as being an experience where they sit in judgment inwardly, alert to what is wrong, and seeking for something which is right, which we might call happiness. Now, what we often what we judge as being wrong about ourselves are the things that we can't accept about ourselves that we label as being unwelcome. Now, this can include the things that we find unpleasant or challenging or threatening. What we label as being unwelcome can also be the thoughts or the feelings or the images that are not terribly flattering. You know, don't fit in with our idea of what we should be. What we label as being wrong might be anger or impatience or jealousy or resentment. The list can often seem very endless. And then, of course, so does the task. Then it is really no surprise that many times during a retreat we find ourselves kind of donning this cloak of heaviness, 
this cloak of honestness because we seem to have such a momentous task before us. We've got so much to do, it seems. Every day seems to offer us perhaps some new or unwelcome revelation of what is wrong with ourselves. And I think sometimes it's it's concluded that there's really no purpose in meditation unless we're fixing something. It's kind of like a retreat comes to be regarded as as a way of taking ourselves in for a service you know, or a tune-up that we're going to, you know, fix this and fix that and, you know, kind of polish this and we're going to go out as, as better and more successful human beings. Now, this, this kind of approach, you know, of setting up goals of spiritual excellence, spiritual desire, and judging ourselves when we fail to meet those goals, This approach of the mind sitting in judge of what is right and wrong inwardly is directly conditioned by the same belief system that may have previously operated in our outer lives. It seems that what is at stake is my happiness. And my happiness is somehow dependent upon the content of my experience. And there is often a certain level of fear in this that unless we really engage in all this doing, we're going to sink into some kind of spiritual tragedy. We're going to become unacceptable, unspiritual, unlovable, uh, kind of despicable type of people. This is, of course, not what happens. Now, I would like to look at this this kind of struggle around doing in a more specific way as it happens in our meditation. Now, what, what, the way in which we begin a retreat is that we essentially invite us to, invite everyone to pay attention, to develop attention. Now, I personally never use the word concentration I very rarely use the word concentration unless I'm actually teaching concentration practice. But this is a word that, of course, is very common in this vocabulary. And when we invite people to pay attention, then the idea comes, well, the point of all this is to get very concentrated. That's what we're going to do. So we invite you to pay attention. You probably noticed today that paying attention, although it's a it seems an extraordinarily simple thing to do. I wonder how many moments of attention you feel you've had today. How many moments of direct connection, immediacy of connection, um, ease of connection, ease of attentiveness have we actually had. It's very difficult. We see how the mind it seems to have this be endlessly drawn into dwelling and preoccupation and past and fantasies. And the conclusion is often then reached that after all of this stops, after the mind stops, after the mind retires, then at that point I'm going to be attentive and I'll be concentrated and I'll probably be happy. Again, we're assuming that concentration or that attention, like happiness, is somehow reliant upon our ability to subdue the difficult or the challenging or the unpleasant. 
we think attention is going to come after and that happiness will come after this stuff and we get really tied into these so we get tied into these absolute knots of our attention you know coming to interviews and saying you know it's so difficult I'm not getting anywhere my attention's so shallow I'll never be able to pay attention I'll never be able to do this we absolutely get tied into these massive knots all over the breath all over our capacity to pay attention we fear that you know first we must be able to pay attention and then we're going to really deepen in meditation now this area of attention becomes a whole other arena in our lives about right and wrong and it can, be, can become a whole other battleground and I would like to invite you this evening not to make meditation into a battleground it is not a black and white struggle between right and wrong. It is not a black and white struggle between the perfect and the imperfect. It is not about success and failure. Never in the history of meditation, I believe, has anyone ever failed. It is never black and white, nor is happiness dependent upon getting rid of anything. Neither is attention. Attention, true attention, is actually very simple. It is something that is very natural and it is very organic. And we must be careful of not looking so hard for it that we miss it. Now, the Buddha once said, and I find this a, a really wonderful statement, that in the mind that is filled with happiness, attention has found a true foundation. What is actually being suggested here is that happiness first and then attention comes naturally. Now, of course, this is a great puzzle when we come into retreats, you know. I mean, if we were absolutely overflowing with happiness, would we, be, would we be here? How do we get to this happiness? What does it mean to get to this happiness so that attention can actually find a true foundation now think a moment about times when you have been truly happy in your life not the happiness of gratification but the simple happiness of being and connection and intimacy I mean think of a moment in your life when you've fallen in love you know have you worried about your mind wandering you know, you know, you're attentive, you know, you're right there. You know, if you're a parent, think of a time when you, you know, you first hold a newborn child, you know, you're not worried about kind of preoccupations. Think of moments when you found a real, had a moment of communication, a connection with nature, and how well you see, and how fully you listen, and how there's no struggle to be attentive. And come of a moment when your, your heart is really opened with, with compassion for someone who's in great sorrow. And how much we can be really there without any trying. So what is the nature of that mind? What is the nature of that, that relationship that allows that attention to 
flower so organically and so fully. The nature of that relationship, of course, it has many different characteristics. One of them is openness. One of them is the total willingness to be where we are. One of the qualities is perhaps that sense of um, surrender. Not wishing it to be different, not trying to manipulate it, not trying to modify it. One of it is perhaps a quality too of dedication. That this is what is needed. That this deserves or is worthy the fullness of the attention that is possible for us. Now in those moments in our lives where there's that kind of intimacy, we don't actually have to work at paying attention. We are attention. Our whole being is attentive. We are actually attention. There's no desire to be anywhere but with what is. Now the desire to move away from what is, is the nature of the consciousness that is somehow missing that intimacy. It is somehow missing that, that sense of, of dedication and that honoring of the moment. This is often the nature of the unhappy consciousness. It begins to look for something other, to be filled up, to be fed in some way. And so much of that desire to be filled up, to be fed, is so tied in with right and wrong, with should and should not, with what's acceptable and with what's unacceptable. Unhappiness stirs restlessness and movement towards and away from. Happiness rests with a certain eagerness, a certain contentment with what is. Unhappiness carries this burden of believing that happiness is dependent upon modification. So it's always in motion, always doing. Happiness knows a great stillness, a willingness just to be still. We can really be aware of this movement in our meditation. We can really stay in touch with those kinds of rhythms. How when we feel begin to feel unhappy. How often that is because we are in contact with something which we have labelled as being unwelcome. We dislike it, we don't want it, we think it should be different. And should always carries a companion. Should always carries a companion of rejection, of denial, of avoidance. Those shoulds and that kind of struggle means that we create an opponent of the present moment. We create an adversarial relationship with this moment. And then our, we believe that our sense of well-being is somehow dependent on overcoming the opponent. But we have created them. We don't need to create them. What actually makes an opponent out of us, out of something in ourselves, out of something in our experience. There's a lot of grasping at the root 
of this creation of a poem. We begin to believe that who we are is defined by what we're experiencing. If anger arises and we define ourselves by that, we say, I'm angry. I'm an angry person. I have to be different. This is not spiritual. This is not acceptable. This is not lovable. I have to be nice. If greed arises and there's grasping, we define ourselves by that. I'm greedy. Why am I greedy? It's terrible to be greedy. You know, why am I always first on the food line? I have to be different. I have to make myself different. We want to change into how we think we should be, and we believe we'll do that by changing our partner, the partner of the contents of our mind. Now, this adversarial relationship that so easily occurs in meditation is what creates so much struggle and so much looking for something else, looking for something other. And it's also this adversarial relationship which seems to kind of just blind us to what it means to be at ease with what is, to welcome, to open our hearts, just to be present. To live in a way which features opponents of causes to live a life of struggle. There's something I'd like to read you Chung Su. It's called The Empty Boat. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, even though they're a very bad-tempered person, they won't become very angry. But if they see another person in the other boat, they'll shout at them to steer clear. And if the shout's not heard, they'll shout again and yet again and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. That's essentially what we're learning to do here. We're learning to stop shouting at ourselves. We're learning to stop shouting at the world. In a way, we're learning in, in a moment-to-moment level how to empty our own boat. Now, what would happen to the greed, to the wandering, to the dullness, to the anger, if they cease to be opponents to us? If we cease to deny them, if we cease to avoid them, if we cease to label them in any way as being unspiritual or unwelcome or unlovable, they would not necessarily disappear, but they would be disempowered. They would not have the power to somehow form a definition of who we are. We'd be able to see them very clearly. We'd be able to embrace them with attention. We'd be able to embrace them with an open heart. We would be able to see clearly and to see deeply. We would be able to accept. And in that accepting and clarity of seeing, so many of those things which we feel that we have to avoid or get rid of, they begin to drop away like autumn leaves falling from a tree. In a very natural way, 
without forcing, without struggling, but because they are no longer kept alive by denial. The major teaching in this path is really how to open our hearts, how to open our minds to the dance that is unfolding in this moment. How to be attentive to that. A real key to that attentiveness is contentment. Now, I don't expect everyone to sort of dance into the meditation realm, you know, singing little ditties, you know, and, you know, twirling streamers, you know, to say how happy we are all to be here. Contentment is something different. It may be that there are many things in your life that are an absolute mess. There may be that there are many things in yourself which you know really need some very deep insight. This is not what is of most significance. What is of most significance is every time we come into this room, every time we begin a walking, how willing are we to be present? How willing are we simply to open our hearts and our minds without judgment? This is what contentment is about. It is an ease in being, a sense of well-being, a sense of connection and intimacy. Through that kind of contentment, of course, the present moment opens itself to us. The present moment begins to open itself to us. And we find within that opening great depths of happiness. Not highs, not intensities, not moments of great excitement, but the happiness of being present the delight of seeing, the delight of being, the delight that comes with openness. And this very most basic, most essential happiness is really what is offered to us in every moment that we bring this quality of welcome and sensitivity to. And our challenge in this path is not not, I feel, ever to become spiritually perfect, not to become, you know, anything at all. Our challenge in this path much more is to cultivate that willingness to be present, to be open, just to be here. Then attention comes. All the attention we ever need comes to us very organically, without struggle, without forcing, without willpower, but simply by renewing that commitment again and again, just to be awake, not looking for something else, but really seeking that which is already with us. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live with contentment. May all beings abide in happiness. If we have just two minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.